0: You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. That's how
1: science works. People have ideas, work them out roughly and then they or others go back and check the details. The fact that the initial idea had to be modified after further scrutiny is not a mark of ineptitude. It's just a sign that science is difficult and progress is often incremental. Intermediate stages involve forward and backward adjustments until we settle theoretically and experimentally on the best ideas. Sadly, Patrick and I didn't finish our calculations in time to prevent the black hole controversy from permeating the newspapers and leading to a lawsuit. We did realize, however, that whether or not black holes could ultimately be produced, other interesting signatures of strongly interacting particles at the LHC might provide important clues about the underlying nature of forces and gravity. And we would see these other signals of higher dimensions at lower energies. Until we see these other exotic signals, we know there is no chance for making black holes. But these other signals themselves might eventually illuminate some aspects of gravity. This work exemplifies another important aspect of science, Even though paradigms might shift dramatically at different ranges of scales, we rarely suddenly encounter such abrupt shifts in the data itself. Data that was already available sometimes precipitated changes in paradigms, such as when quantum mechanics ultimately explained known spectral lines. But often, small deviations from predictions in active experiments are preludes to more dramatic evidence to come. Even dangerous applications of science take time to develop, Scientists might be held responsible in some respects for the nuclear weapons era, but none of them suddenly discovered a bomb by surprise. (laughs) Understanding the equivalence of mass and energy wasn't enough. Physicists had to work very hard to configure matter into its dangerous
0: explosive form. Lisa Randall studies physics and cosmology at Harvard University. She has been one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People and Rolling Stone's RS100 Agents of Change, her book, Warped Passages, Unraveling the Mysteries of the Universe's Hidden Dimensions, was named a New York Times Notable Book of 2005. Her libretto for Hyper Music, a Prologue, premiered at Pompidou Center in Paris in 2009. Her new book is Knocking on Heaven's Door, How Physics and Scientific Thinking Illuminate the Universe and the Modern World. Thank you for joining me, Lisa.
1: Thanks for having me here.
0: Lisa, you're a big fan of the LHC, Large Hadron Collider, aren't you?
1: Well, I think it's an important uh, machine that could change our view of the nature of matter and space and time even.
0: A large part of this book is devoted to uh, the construction and the history of this. But also, this is a really interesting book, uh, a really great written work, not just about the technology of science, or the physics of science, all of which you cover with great clarity and make things clear that had never been grockable by me before. <laughs> but you also talk about the role of science in society, and I think this is really important at this point in time when it seems there there seems to be such a reaction against science, the scientific method, and scientific thought.
1: Yeah, actually, the germ of this book really was more that aspect. I mean, the reason I wanted to write this book was really easily as much to just say what really goes into scientific thinking and how relevant and important it can be as much as uh details of the large hadron collider it's funny because the details are really only a few chapters in the book but that's what everyone focuses on i was teasing a friend i think it's sort of like when you're biking up a hill you remember the really hard part of the hill the most even though it pro- might have been only a small fraction of your of your ride but um and that is the most challenging for some people because it is the most technical and detailed but what I was really concerned with was just explaining sort of the basic concepts that underlie science and what they are and so what goes into creativity, how we're really thinking about things, what it means to be right and wrong, the role of uncertainty, those kind of aspects, which often get underplayed and are really important and can be applied more generally, like you just said.
0: Well, one of the things that interested me was that you traced um, the, the kind of... Uh, discussion we're having culturally about science back to the 17th century Mm -hmm. and that things haven't changed that much since Galileo.
1: Well, you know, it's funny. I I think I said something like the big questions might not have changed, but the little questions certainly have. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I wanted to get across was just the way we think about things and build on old ideas. As technology advances, we can see things where C is in quotes. We can observe through indirect measurements things that we couldn't before. But it is interesting because at any given stage of history, I think people take for granted the things that are already known. And they're really cu- questioning about anything new. So even looking through a lens had to be sanctioned by the church. That was, indirect measurement was as valid as looking with your eyes, which is so hard for us to grapple with now. Of course, we you know looking through a lens is as good as looking directly. But actually, it was a big deal then to have glasses. So you'll sometimes, occasionally see a pair of glasses in paintings from that era, which was really a significant change, that people really had could trust their eyes through that. Gla- and the same way, we want to trust measurements through the Large Hadron Collider. I mean, it has been, I mean, we of course know a lot more than we do, and, and science has evolved. But a lot of the roots of the methods, I mean, I hadn't really fully appreciated it. Like I said in the book, I was just lucky. I happened to be in Padua at the 400th anniversary of Galileo's major work. And I learned a lot about what, how science had developed in that time, and, and just the basic principles were, were there. You're right about that.
0: Well, one of the things, what you said reminded me of a Douglas Adams quote where he said <laughs> is that um, stuff that was there when you're a child is just accepted and normal. Stuff that is developed by the time you're a teenager is great and new and innovative and shiny and beautiful. And anything that hap- is invented after you're 20 is the work of the devil <laughs> <laughs> and very yeah. questionable. And I think that, that we see that kind of attitude towards uh, science, too.
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, fortunately, I think, uh, you know, 40 is the new 20. So I think people are a little bit more open-minded than they used to be. Um, but but it is true that at some point, I mean, and that was another reason I really want to write this, because in my previous book, Warp Passages, I talked about particle physics, and I built it up systematically. But when people just hear about the idea of an extra dimension of space, it, it seems almost mystical or magical, maybe not the work of the devil, but not as scientific. And what I really wanted to get across was how we scientifically, how with technology and science, we evolved to this point that we can think about these ideas in systematic and testable ways. That it's not just magic; <laughs> it's really not dark magic. Um, it's really things that we were able to. That if you look at it as um, sort of partitioned by scale, the lengths at which we can see, in some sense, that technology allows us to probe, you understand science much better. You understand how things fit into a much larger context, and that's what makes it interesting.
0: Well, it, I really like the way you kind of take us through um, this, the scales going up and going down, mm-hmm. and also the scales of technology and discovery. One of the things that uh, Galileo did, he was the first person to even use technology. And before that, the only technology we had, and you kind of point this out, was the human body, the eyes. We could look at something and say, okay... That looks smaller. that looks big. Well, I mean, big. there
1: was technology like an astrolabe or ways to measure things more precisely. But they weren't ways of looking, if you like. They were ways of making very accurate measurements. Mm-hmm. So what ge- changed with Galileo was this idea of a lens, that there could be something between your senses and the object that you're observing. That was a big difference.
0: And that's the that's what you call indirect measurement.
1: Right. And, and it, it, you know, it's hard to think of a telescope as an indirect measurement at this point. But for them, that was.
0: One of the things that Galileo did was he had a, a huge conflict with the church, and this mm-hmm. had to do with the decentralization or, or taking man out of the center of the universe. And, and I think this is uh, something that you talk about, too.
1: Well, you know, it's not clear exactly what it was in the sense that I think what the church was really angry about was the fact that he publicly talked about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, it did disagree with what was in Scripture, but as I talk about, also it was the time of the, of the Count um, Reformation, and the church was worried, mm-hmm. and so they didn't want people going around independently thinking for themselves. So Galileo was actually a deeply religious man. He didn't think he was contradicting scripture. He thought people were misunderstanding scripture because clearly what he was finding was right. And so, you know, scripture couldn't be wrong. So it must be that there was some more subtle interpretation. And that actually was the Augustinian view for a long time. So he wasn't trying to disown the church, but the church was worried because he publicly presented the results. I mean. And that was what was dangerous to them, the fact that the idea that they were no longer the sole authority, that people could really start thinking for themselves. I think that's what they were scared of.
0: You describe the universe as sublime. (laughs) And I I like this. That's uh, the way you take us through this description of the universe as sublime and the artistic perception Mm -hmm. of the universe, the scientific and the religious. So (laughs) I'd like you to talk about how you um, explore that and how that impacts our understanding of science today?
1: You know, it, it it really is a fascinating word in the sense that, I mean, I think a lot of people have a, a certain relationship to it. When the sublime is in somehow, it's something that's in some sense beautiful, but also scary. And mm-hmm. that's the thing. The, it's sort of the enormity of the universe, this idea of can can you access it? Can you understand it? How would you do that? And I think what what I talked about was how Art, science, and religion are all ways of trying to grapple with that sort of enormity that, as I said, is both beautiful and frightening at the same time. So um, with, with art, I think a lot of it has to do with sort of our psychology, our emotional needs. We're not necessarily finding objective truths about the universe, but I think it's more about how we relate to it. I mean, of course, one can look at different examples where they really are trying to have some solar system or whatever. But really, I think that's a, the essential nature of art. is It's a very human endeavor. And religion, although not always presented that way, is in some sense that as well. It's, a, I think it's um, addressing some psychological and social needs, but it does also sometimes try to actually make actual statements about the universe itself. And even sometimes when it's talking about our psychological needs, it is, because even if it's saying it's helping you make moral choices, well, that is at some level affecting something in your brain if you really believe that's what's going on. And so, so at that point you are sort of having some friction with, with science itself. I mean, science is a much more objective way of trying to do it, to try to look at objective truths. Now, of course, we're people. In the process of doing science, You know, people, things will get in the way. We might be happy or excited or upset or um, have some inspiration. But in the end of the day, we wanna have rigorous truths that it, different people can independently verify, that Really tell us uh, what's out there in the sense of not having to do with us. We might, what has to do with us is how we observe it, how we figure it out, but we'd like to believe there there are objective truths that that we can all agree on. so I'd say that there really are very different ways of approaching the sublime, and they sort of serve different purposes, and when we run into trouble is when we try to make too much of an
0: overlap of purpose now um, you're a, you're a wonderful writer, and i, I wanted I wanted to talk just about your decision to write um about this subject. Uh here you are immersed in the highest levels of of the, of some very abstruse and, and and you know uh difficult to grok physics. <laughs> um but your what you a, a large part of this book as as we've been discussing is is devoted to, you know, the place of science and the practice of science. And Uh, Could you talk just about composing these chapters and sitting down to write them?
1: Yeah, it's funny because it it was a challenging thing to do. You know, sometimes I I say to my friends, I wish I was doing some sort of easier science to explain like biology, because then you could sort of more naturally go back and forth between the two. I mean, it is a challenge that the physics we do is so esoteric. But on the other hand, I like challenges. (laughs) So I think I think, um, in this case, it was a really interesting writing process, I have to say, because um, I would sit down and just say, okay, this is some idea that I really want to cover. I think it's essential to science, and, and figuring out really how to integrate it all in a sensible way. It's funny, because when I finally got the order right, it felt right, and you know, part of it, I think, is that... Although it seems hard to crack. I mean, these are all things that are in my head. It's not that they're artificial. And and to me, it's all one consistent story. And of course, I have the advantage of knowing the rigorous science that lies behind it. So I have the training. But there is a consistent story there. And I thought, you know, with enough work, I could dig it out. And so part of the challenge was the fact that there are so many topics that I thought were relevant. I ha- I really did try to keep them streamlined so that they just didn't go on, that you could really read a chapter and get the essential ideas. And I wanted to be able to integrate it in a sensible way. So both sort of, you know, I would start off with just so many ideas that I wanted to put them all down, and then really trying to figure out how to sort of um, carve it out so that it really told the story I wanted to tell and then integrate it into a big one w- was was definitely a challenge. But um, But that was why it's fun. I mean, if I was just doing the same thing again or just explaining the physics, I mean, I've done that already, and I'm not saying I did it perfectly, but I've, but I've done that, and I really wanted to do a bigger story. I thought that was more fun and more interesting to me as well.
0: Well, one of the things I think that's really important about this book that that I took away was just the idea of how science, um, how important it is to see that, for example, uh, Newtonian physics that that works, but yet yes. it can go, but we go, but it works. Mm-hmm. For the, in, the instruments that were um, invented at the time, it still predicts things fine in the physical world, but there's more. And just because there is more doesn't mean what we used to know is invalid right. or the result of mistakes or that the scientific process is somehow flawed. When we discover something new that, and that invalidates something old, that makes the scientific process stronger, not weaker.
1: I'm so glad you got that point. I just, I mean, and that's such an important point because, I mean, of course, like I said, I wrote this other book. A lot of people were interested in the science, but I do think that there is this misconception out there and people don't trust science and they think, well, you're constantly changing your ideas. And, but it's not true. We're building on our ideas and that's a really important distinction. Um, actually, someone was interviewing me the other day and they said, yeah, people don't realize it's not a zero-sum game. And that's the important thing. It's not that we throw away something. It's just that we have something richer, that underlies the old theory and that applies over a broader range but you know i i i use the analogy you, you wouldn't want a detailed roadmap to go across the country you don't need that information and in fact that's why it's so hard to discover this detailed information because it doesn't appear at experiments until you have the precision or the the resolution that you can probe these new ideas and so it's really just such a rich story and that's that was you know it seems so obvious in retrospect but It's not. And and there were so many people that really felt, you know, told me that they felt enlightened by this. And I felt that was really rewarding.
0: Well, that's one of the things, too, is that we pair, you pair um, (laughs) the advances in technology um, with our advancing understanding. And I like this idea of dividing things up by levels of scale, because uh and this leads us eventually to the new hadron large hadron collider right
1: and i think it's really important because it's hard to understand what the large hadron collider is unless you understand this systematic evolution like where what is its place and to understand what is the scale that we're probing not just inside an atom and not just inside a nucleus but we're probing scales smaller than the scales even for the elementary quarks inside and these all sound like exotic terms but this rich new structures at each scale. We're learning about new forces, new underlying theories. I mean, When we discovered atoms, we didn't just discover these elements that compose matter, we discovered quantum mechanics. So you have this idea that when you discover these new things, you could really find much richer structure, which um, really enlightens us about the nature of the world. And it's important to see how that corresponds and where, where we are.
0: It's also uh, uh, important, too, to realize that the unintended consequences of developing the technology to do this, as you point out, the the bazillion dollars that everybody's making every second uh, selling real estate through the World Wide Web are <laughs> courtesy of the Large Hadron Collider.
1: Yeah, don't blame us for everything, though, all the problems. But <laughs> but it is it is a really interesting fact, though, that the world. What, I mean, it might have happened otherwise, but. But the, the incentive was to have all these physicists working from different nations that work at CERN, which is the organization that now houses the Large Hadron Collider. At the time, it housed a different collider. But, but Tim Berners-Lee wanted a way to have them efficiently work together, um, took advantage of ARPANET, and made the World Wide Web so that they could work directly. And, of course, that had consequences far beyond anything anyone could have anticipated. I mean, right now, they have distributed computing power. So not just information, which is what the web is, but actual computing power. And I I bet that actually takes off and is used more broadly as well.
0: Well, one of the things I think, too, that interests me is that, you know, this book has, a, a, I think, a political slant to it. And, and, it and, and I wish I'm, you
1: were reviewing my book and not the physicists who <laughs> focus only on the Large Hadron Collider. There were all these other ideas there.
0: <laughs> well, this is, where I think, really important. You're very passionate about this, and you're very outspoken, and, and I'm really glad. To, what, what's nice is to see somebody who's a clear-headed, high-level, smart scientist who can, who's also aware of the social and, uh, you know, the social implications of science, and also the social perception of science now, because uh, we're, I think, in a fairly um, socially, we're, sociologically, we're in a dangerous place where uh, we have presidential candidates who are falling over themselves to discredit science. Right. And that's, that's scary. I
1: actually had a commentary in, in Time magazine about that, the fact that I mean, there is something strange. And this isn't to say you can't be religious, but I do think it's really strange that politicians are more comfortable talking about God and religion than they are talking about science and numbers and facts. I mean, we have some really difficult problems today. We have a lot of challenges. And if we're going to abandon the scientific method and science, we're going to be in trouble. I mean, it's worked for us for a long time. And that's not to say you can't find your moral inspiration where you want to, but it's not enough just to have moral inspiration. We really do need to boil down what is the policy, what does it mean, how does it work, and really follow it through. And I think um, even when politicians do do that, they're almost ashamed to tell you about it. And I think if people, they should be proud of it. We should live in a place where you should be proud that you've actually made well-reasoned um, choices and it, that you can explain your, your reasons for your choices. I, think I, I, I know that's very idealistic sounding, but um, it's crazy that using facts is idealistic in this world.
0: I I agree, and, and two, this goes against a long religious history, as you point out. You have a great uh, um, section here about Augustine, and we talked a little bit about that. That you know, for many years, the perception of uh, of science and religion was that they were absolutely meant that science, uh, Galileo, was a Galileo who thought he was uncovering the, the the glories of God with science. I mean, this is makes perfect sense to me, and.
1: You know, you can have whatever underlying beliefs you want, but um, you can't discredit what you're measuring with with um, instruments. Um, your senses might be unreliable, but that the whole idea of science is to come up with reliable facts. Now, I think where confusion comes in is that there is very rarely something that's measured with 100% certainty. And that's, again, where this notion of scale is so relevant, because uncertainty is actually part of stating any fact in science or elsewhere. And in fact, uncertainty is what tells us there could be this underlying new structure in the context of science. And it's actually what tells us sometimes we might be making the wrong judgments. But if you understand your uncertainty, uh, maybe you can understand your risk a little better. Like if you said, if we had said, well, you know, the economy has gone up for oh, for a while, but what happens if it goes down by 10%? We might have anticipated uh, 2008 a lot better. And so it's not, it isn't enough just to state facts. We really should understand the uncertainties that are involved. But I think that what happens is people jump on those uncertainties and think, okay, you don't know anything. And that's actually not the case. Uncertainties are a way of actually knowing things better. It tells you what you really do understand, what you really don't understand for sure, and with what probability you can trust your judgment. And knowing that, I do think, allows you to make better choices.
0: I think it's really important to know the limits of your knowledge It's as much as what you know. You need to know where it ends, because that's where, for you as a scientist, your experiments begin.
1: And but I think scientists are afraid to say that because people jump on it. People jump on it and say, "Well, you don't know what you're talking about." And and we have. I mean, one of the things I want to explain is that that isn't what that means. It means you actually know what you're talking about much better.
0: Right. Well, that's I think your your uh, session on uh, section on. a risk assessment, I think, is really in, in mm-hmm. really illuminating. And you you point out something that I think is really underplayed, mm-hmm. uh, which is that we're worried about hijackings, plane crashes, terrorists, mm-hmm. satellites falling in the sky. I mean, mm-hmm. wars. Mm-hmm. I mean, why is there not a war on automobile accidents? <laughs> I, which, as you point out, probably kill more people every year than well, uh, the rest of that stuff. I mean, I, had I wouldn't together. say that
1: necessarily. That has to be the case. I mean, what happens is we try to do, to the best of our ability, a cost-benefit analysis. Mm-hmm. And I think people evaluate the benefits of cars and think it's worth it's worth the risk of driving. Mm-hmm. And for, for most people, it is. I mean, the risk isn't high enough that they would say, I'm never going to get in a car again. And I think we have gone out of our way to make cars safer. And the cost-benefit analysis told us that in certain cases, I mean, that airbags were, were a good idea, that seatbelts are a good idea. Mm-hmm. So, we haven't ignored the issue of auto safety, but what is funny is the way we um, focus on this sort of rare cataclysmic events. I mean, someone just pointed out to me the amuse- well, I don't know if it's amusing, but people are much more worried about nuclear disasters now than they were before. Now, clearly, nuclear. I mean, I'm not say I'm not arguing one way or the other, but they haven't become less safe because of what happened in Japan. They are as every bit as safe or unsafe as they were before, but because this event happened people are just much more aware of it. And so the psychological evaluation of risk is very different than the sort of concrete evaluation of risk. That's, I mean, maybe we should have been as worried before, but it is interesting how it changes according to what actually happens in the world.
0: You know, um, one of the things that uh, struck me as reading, you know, the opening section of your book was that uh, we need more scientists who are addressing these issues in 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 That's this nice. manner, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and, and getting attention for it. Uh,
1: well, one of the interesting things, actually, for me, and is how diff- how people really are ignoring those parts of the book a lot of the time. And you know, this is I'm really enjoying this interview. But you know, when I look at you know the reviews go to physicists who um, will talk about the large hadron, which is very exciting. It's not mm-hmm. that I want to ignore it. But they're not focusing. I thought I said all these controversial things. I thought people would jump on it. But they're, they're, it's amazing that people aren't even engaging with it a lot of the time. And, it's, and I think it's a re- really important discussion to be had.
0: Well, it... What you say about religion is, is pretty, uh, um, I think, uh, controversial at one point. It might
1: d- be controversial, but what I really did try very hard to do, mm-hmm. I really tried not to be um, sort of adamant on one side or the other. The sign that, that I actually did a good job was that I gave it to religious people, I gave it to non-religious people, and both were unhappy with what I wrote. <laughs> so I thought I was doing a pretty good job. In fact, I gave it to the OIT chaplain who at one point marked up and he said, I hate to admit this, but you're actually making sense here. So <laughs> so I was really trying to actually have a real discussion. I wasn't trying to just get people all fired up. I was like, I really, really wanted to say, what are the differences? And use that as a way also, really, of illuminating what science is and what its methods are and how we go about things.
0: Well, I think you've done a fine job of getting getting us to understand um, the science. And I think this is also really uh, helpful once we get to to the the parts where you're talking about the the actual science itself yeah. and the physics and the right. Large Hadron Collider, because as as our technology gets to the kind of mind boggling uh, right. proportions of the Large Hadron Collider, which you call, well, many people have called one of the greatest mm-hmm. achievements in human history, um, we're able to measure things and and mm-hmm. see things that, well, are it's literally you can't there, they are. In fact, invisible, because they're smaller than the wavelength of light. So I'm they're
1: visible but they're observable. They're and that's obs- the key distinction, that we don't literally see them mm-hmm. with with our eyes, but we do observe them uh, indirectly. And so I, well, that's what I wanted to do, is sort of draw you in so that you can see what it means to observe it and why we trust the results.
0: Now, uh, one of the things, too, that I think is uh, somewhat in the background of this book is the triumphant success of the standard model Hmm. and so talk a little bit because it's been verified in the past 30 years everything yeah it's really kind of nailed down now so talk a little bit about the standard model and what how the level levels of technology that verified that and how the Hadron Collider is going to enable you to dig deeper and find new stuff
1: so um, the standard model of particle physics um, tells us about matter's most basic elements as we know them today, given what we've explored, and the forces through which they interact. So there are four known forces, the strong nuclear force, the weak nuclear force, electromagnetism, and gravity. So, of course, electromagnetism and gravity were known at the beginning of the last century, but the nuclear forces were not, and those are responsible for beta decay. It's the strong forces responsible for holding together a proton or a neutron that sits inside a nucleus. And it's true. Each of the um, so there's those light elements that are we are in stable matter, and then there are heavier versions that are discovered only when you go to higher energies and have colliders. Although they appear in cosmic rays, I mean they're not just made up particles that appear um, magically. They really are particles that are there. They have the same charges as the light particles, but they decay. And so we really have nailed down those basic elements. They've all been discovered. In fact. Vermilab um, has the Tevatron. until recently, it was just closed down. Mm -hmm. And the Tevatron actually um, found sort of the last missing ingredients of the so-called standard model, um, the top quark and actually the heaviest neutrino. So so we have um, a really good idea of what those basic elements are. So you say, why are we still looking? Well, there's a couple of reasons we're still looking. One is it would be really weird if we lived in the one time where there was nothing more to find. Any uh, Anytime we've assumed that, we've been wrong. But people always assume that because they think we understand everything. Let's let's stop now. Um, but then the, the other reason is, although the standard model works, there's a couple of fundamental assumptions in it that people know can't possibly be right. I mean, sometimes the Higgs mechanism, the Higgs particles included as part of the standard model, that's a little bit of a cheat because all we know is that there is a mechanism to give part, elementary particles their masses, but we don't know what are the... What are the physical ingredients that do that? So that's a big question, and that's why we have the search for the so-called Higgs boson. And the other really big question is why masses are what they are. Why aren't they much, much bigger than we would, um, than, they are, than they are in reality? And the reason we think that that should be the case is because of combining together quantum mechanics and special relativity. But since we've measured them, we know it's not. So we don't believe there's a fudge in the theory. There could be some really deep insight into the, what underlies the standard model, in the same way we talked about other theories that underline Newton's law. I mean, right now, the standard model works incredibly well, but we're almost certain it's not the final answer.
0: Now, uh, the, the, the Higgs boson has been called the God particle. <laughs> Why?
1: Well, it depends who you ask. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, if you ask Leon Letterman, who called it then in his book, he claims his editor has something to do with it and i think i think it might have been actually the goddamn particle or something like that at some point <laughs> but um but i think i i mean i you know i joke in my book that you know we shouldn't take the name of the higgs boson in vain you know <laughs> <laughs> i think um really we have this particle that is responsible for the mass of elementary particles and that's a really important thing i mean structure wouldn't have happened everything would have still been moving around at the speed of light if we didn't have this higgs mechanism uh, which might be uh, experimentally verified through the discovery of the Higgs boson, this, this so-called God particle. But, um, you know, I, I think it, it was just a little bit of branding there. But it is a really, really important ingredient of, of matter and nature, what it is that gives elementary particles their mass. And certainly something we'd like to understand better.
0: Now, uh, there's a couple of other um, – mm-hmm. there's some theories that are all competing for time at at the mm-hmm. – the Large Hadron Collider. Let's talk a little bit about this machine. It's it's pretty remarkable. Uh, tell Before you us-
1: even do that, let me just say that this that's actually a misconception that people have that the different theories are competing for time. Mm-hmm. So it's it's important to understand that. I mean the the way the Large Hadron Collider works is it's colliding together protons, and experimenters are measuring everything they can measure, mm-hmm. anything that might be interesting. Afterwards, after the data is there, um, they'll divide up into groups to figure out which of these possible models, as we call them, could be right. But they're all being searched for at once, and thats a, I think that's a far you're pointing in a particular direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: I was, actually. But, <laughs>
1: but, yeah, but um, actually, at the Large Hadron Collider, you're just recording the data. You try to make sure that you record all the possibly interesting data, but then each, um, each different group will um, analyze it in different ways to see, do you see any evidence of different types of models?
0: Okay, well, let's talk about the the machine itself. Mm-hmm. It's huge and it's <laughs> underground and it's co- goes between two countries. We might not have ha- might not have had it had we not killed the super collider back in ninety three, huh?
1: Well, I think I mean it's a good question. I think the Large Hadron Collider was pretty much always on track. And when mm-hmm. they built the previous machine, they made the tunnel this twenty seven kilometer around uh, tunnel, so in circumference tunnel big enough so that they could eventually build the large hadron collider there. So it was always in the European plan. I do think it it it, it hurt the schedule it, actually that we killed the superconducting supercollider. I think there would have been a really healthy competition mm-hmm. had it um but um but uh and maybe the existence of the LHC hurt the SSC a little bit the supercond because we thought well it'd be done in Europe. But the fact is had we done it here it probably would have been done faster. But it certainly would have been a better machine because one of the things that it's a little bit difficult to wrap your head around is it's not um, accelerating the particles to high energy. That's the challenge. It's keeping them in the ring. Mm -hmm. And more energetic particles are more challenging to keep in the ring. Uh, You need a bigger magnetic field to do that. So if you could build a really, really big tunnel, then you can get away with weaker magnetic fields. So because CERN, the organization that has the LHC, already had a tunnel, they had no choice. They just had to. They could get up to a particular energy, which is what their goal is. Uh, The SSC was being built from scratch. Mm -hmm. So it could have, in principle, had almost three times the energy, which, of course, would
0: have been really nice. Well, we have, at this point in time, we do have the uh, uh, LHC. Yes. And uh, you talked about magnets uh, a little bit. You talk about some really wild stuff about these magnets. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, They're huge. And and, yeah. and they're somewhat dangerous. I mean, uh, talk about uh, quenching a magnet. I've never even heard that term before.
1: Well, these are superconducting magnets, mm-hmm. which means they have superconducting wire, and uh, and that's important. Um, so it requires a certain amount. Of, but basically, you want to have. So you need these um, very cold uh, super superconducting wires, and. Um, but you want to make sure that it never shorts because if it was shorts, then a huge amount of um, energy can be released. And so they have to be really careful about – I mean, these magnets store a lot of, a lot of energy. Um, so that half a
0: metric ton of TNT.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, it, so it's a lot. So you, you certainly want to be careful and, um, to not have that field just suddenly um, die very quickly at some point. That, that would be very bad. Um, but it is an, a remarkable technology, and I mean, you talked about the size of them. They're about f- 15 meters long, and I think there's 192 of them going around the ring, at least the dipole magnets. And actually, the size is determined by a couple of factors. But one of them was um, actually driving them on the streets through Europe. <laughs> if they were any longer, they couldn't make the turns. And there's some really historical pictures of these magnets being taken through some tiny towns. Um, but um, they're really impressive technology.
0: Now uh, you've been tracking this the whole time, haven't you? The 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 hadron collider. You human? know, it's funny. Um, it's been in your life for a long. It has time.
1: been, but you know, it it's not something I was actively working on all the time. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of, I've been tracking it at some level, but I tend to really keep track of the details of things that I can have a role in. So now I care a lot because they can be doing my experiments or what things I'm suggesting or looking for models I have. Um, I'd say in the past, you know, we're sort of, we're keeping an eye on it, making sure it's happening, wondering what's going on. And I talk about the history, but I have to say, you know, Basically, you focus on the things that you can make progress on. So I was working on different, you know, in some ways, having this long development time gave me an opportunity to think about sort of crazier or more abstract theoretical ideas um, than I would have involving uh, very strongly interacting particles or extra dimensions of space or something called supersymmetry. I think you had it been really focused on that. You, you might not have had the luxury to be able to think about these, these ideas. But then what comes out of that are targets for the LHC searches. So it was really very nice, the sort of interplay between having it in the background, but not necessarily being that actively involved with it.
0: Now, there are two kinds of colliders. There's beam colliders and target colliders. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, so so there's a number of choices that go into deciding together to collide together two proton beams, which Mm -hmm. is what this collider does. So um, one is just the fact that there are two beams colliding with each other, Now, if you think about it, it's a lot easier to get a beam to collide with some matter that's just sitting there. It's just what's called a fixed target experiment for Mm -hmm. obvious reasons. You have this sitting duck target, and you have a beam collide into it. So you're definitely going to get some collisions, whereas with two beams, you have to have them both very well focused. Now, why would we ever do beam-beam collision? It's because we get to take advantage of much more of the energy. If you want to get to higher energies, you don't benefit. It's not just twice the energy. um, It's the square of the energy, essentially, because... Um just from relativity, you know that you don't, you have to have what's called the center of mass energy. So you have to go into a frame where that would be sitting. And so all that kinetic energy would be lost in some sense.
0: Difference so. between driving into a wall and a head-on collision.
1: Well, it's... it's More than that. But. It's kind of more than that because now it's a, it's relativistic. Mm-hmm. So your intuition's a little bit like not telling you what's going It's really, you, you gain a lot mm-hmm. by having beam-beam collisions. And then you have questions like which particles to collide. Should it be proton? You want first to decide it should be stable, elementary particles. Not necessarily elementary, but stable. You don't want your particles decaying, probably, although you might be able to get away with that. So protons or electrons seem like good choices. Protons actually let you get to higher energies because electrons are very light and radiate a lot of energy when they go around a ring. So we're we're at protons or antiprotons. So then you think maybe protons and antiprotons are better because then when they get together... They would have no charge, and therefore you can make anything, in principle, any particle and its antiparticle. But actually, the, the really cool thing about the LHC is it's so high energy that it's not really just protons that are colliding. I sort of use the analogy. It's like if you collide together two bean bags of really high energies, it might be the individual beans, beans inside mm-hmm. that collide. In some sense, that's what's going on with, when you have proton collisions. So you actually don't just have the whole proton collide all at once. It's actually the individual ingredients inside. So because of that, it's much more efficient to have two proton beams because as you might guess, there's a lot more protons around than antiprotons. So it would require a lot of work to get as many antiprotons. So this is a long story, but because we wanna get as high energies as we want, as many collisions as we want, as we can, these are the goals. That's why we settled on proton-proton
0: collisions. Now, when these collisions happen, they go through a variety <laughs> of uh, traps to to detect the particles. Mm-hmm. And you give us a great some great graphics and describe mm-hmm.
1: this. I had really good artists. It was very nice.
0: It, the book is very nicely laid out. And I think that's important. It makes it a lot easier. as a reading experience if you're just immersing yourself in the I appreciate it because it
1: <laughs> was a lot of work, work working <laughs> together to try to get those things to be clear. They were really good at sort of graphically presenting information. So yeah, it really re- was. had to get it all right.
0: Yeah. It helps. Um one of the things you talk about, and I think it's really interesting, is there's so much data mm-hmm. coming when you do these things mm-hmm. that the the next big and somewhat un, under-suspected, uh, I guess, uh, resource is the computational power to mm-hmm. grab this yeah. data. Yeah. So talk about the triggers.
1: Yeah, so there's sort of two things that go on. One is to make sure you don't grab all the data because you couldn't possibly record record it all. So you want to have what are known as triggers, which are a little bit um, like spam filters or some sort of filter where you're trying to say what could be the interesting information. You're trying to see what are the signs. In this case, you're looking for the signs that something could be good, not just bad. So, And the reason we're doing that is the processes we we're looking for are rare. So you have a lot of data, a lot of information, but most of it is stuff we already know. Most of it is not enlightening us about what underlies the standard model. Most of it is the standard model. So... You want to pull out these one in a trillion events that are interesting. So you have to identify what are the cool and interesting features about these events. It's one of the reasons theorists are important, model builders, because we say we can figure out in any individual model or quite generally, what are the things that don't happen in the standard model or don't happen as often. So you want to record the events that, where you have a chance of having a reasonable, what's called, signal-to-background signal or the good things, background, it's not bad stuff, but it's stuff that could confuse your signal. So you have these triggers, and once it passes all of the triggers, there are three levels of triggers. Once it passes all those, then the data is finally recorded to be analyzed. And even then, it's a lot of data. And so that's why the grid was developed, to have this distributed computing power, so computers all over the world can work in conjunction to sort of start processing this data.
0: So this has been going on for a while now. Have you you have your your own theory and we'll we'll get to that in a second. I'm just wondering how much of this data has come into your hands and how
1: Well, fortunately, I don't have to look at the raw data. Uh-huh. And in fact, it wouldn't necessarily be useful for me to look at the raw data because mm. part of the challenge is to really understand the experiments well enough to be able to process it. What we do look at are lots of papers that the experimenters put out and say they say we're looking for this, this is what we have. And, you know, what's really nice about this particular time period is that there is much more back and forth between the theory and experiment, in the sense that we can say, you know, you're presenting the data this way, but, you know, your, your data could also be useful for this analysis. Have you tried that? Or have you tried organizing it this way? So there is a back and forth so that we can get the data in a form that's useful for us and also encourage them to look in particular ways. So it's not like it's all fixed in stone, which is really nice.
0: This goes to something, too, that's, I think, really nice about CERN and about the story you tell, which is this is a huge international cooperative Mm -hmm. where people are all working for the same goal, and Mm -hmm. you don't have, and this goes back to your risk assessment, there's no moral hazard Mm -hmm. here (laughs) that's going to incentivize somebody to do something that will make themselves successful. If the thing falls apart, it falls apart for everybody. Mm -hmm. Um, So... Uh, and I think that the 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 web and and the mm-hmm. current level of communications technology mm-hmm. and edit and document editing technology for that matter mm-hmm. um, facilitates the discovery as much as the the stuff that's mm-hmm. producing the raw data.
1: Yeah, I, I don't and and. To to a large extent, that's true. I don't want to overly idealize it. I mean, there are lots of egotistical people involved <laughs> who really want to see that them, themselves get credit. They want to make sure they grab the data. They want to, but but overall, it works well. I mean, you know, it's large collaborations. The results come out, and eventually, the the true things happen. And I think probably compared to most other <laughs> fields, we really do see a lot of coordination and cooperation, and um, and and it it is a really nice thing that people really do do want to see what are the results. I mean, if there's an interesting study to be done, um, you would hope that people are going to do it because those people are, are eager to make their mark, too. So if there's an interesting study they can do. I mean, there are thousands of people in experiments, so there's room for people to look for in different ways for different things, and that's what makes it interesting.
0: Well, I have to ask about something I read about very recently, was that... Uh, there was some evidence that neutrinos had traveled faster than yeah, light. Yeah, you, What can you tell us about that? I
1: can. And um, that's not the LHC, first of all. But it, it was um, neutrinos traveling between CERN and Grand Sasso in Italy, mm-hmm. and, but something called the Opera Experiment. And it was a really interesting case in point of sort of the story we told in the beginning, where they sort of don't know exactly if they're right. I think even when they presented their results, they said, look, this is the measurement we did. This is how accurately we could do our timing. We could do our space measurement. But it seems like it's going faster than the speed of light. Um, tell us what you think. I mean, are we, are we missing something? Can other experiments reproduce this? So they know that it probably isn't right. But also it was interesting to see the way it was reported. Mm-hmm. Because suppose it had been right. I mean, a lot of the reporting said Einstein's theory overturned. That time travel is now possible. And both of those are sort of very misleading because, as we said earlier, as with Newton's Law, it wouldn't say Einstein's theory is overturned. It might say that there was some more deep underlying theory that we haven't yet discovered that appears if you do more precise measurements and only if you do more precise measurements. And time travel is probably the least likely interpretation, even if that were true. Um, it would tell us that this the assumptions underlying Einstein's theory were not exact. And in that case... Um, we would be looking not for time travel, but we'd be looking for why were those assumptions not correct. Um and there there are various theories that could have possibly accounted for it. One is a variation of uh, an idea that that I had had. Uh, we weren't looking for this kind of violation, but people had worked out uh, models where it, it could have this type of violation.
0: Is this the, the theory you came up with um mm-hmm. uh with the the uh, exponential brain theory? That's right,
1: yeah. So <laughs> Raman Sandra and I had this idea that um it's, and again, it sounds so out there if you just jump into it. But really, there there's this question about why gravity is, as a fundamental force, so much weaker than the other forces. And people have been looking for decades uh, for solutions. And I've worked on some of those. I still work on some of those other ideas. But we had a new idea, which had to do with having an extra dimension of space. Two objects known as brains, short for membrane. Um, you could think of it a little bit like a shower curtain that traps water. These are brains that trap particles like us. And there could be two brains that are actually really close together, but gravity varies exponentially between the two. And that was just something we found by accident. We solved Einstein's equations of general relativity, and that's what happens in the context that we did with these two objects called brains separated in this extra dimension, this very exotic concept. It could actually explain the weakness of gravity. In a way that has experimental consequences for the Large Hadron Collider. That's one of the really exciting things, and they're actually looking for experimental consequences of this idea.
0: Now, uh, you have this this new this theory about hmm. brain, these two membranes, and an extra dimension. Uh, tell us a little bit about this, because um, when you say dimension, that's yeah. not the same kind of uh, that's not like the dimension where there's an evil Kirk and Spock.
1: <laughs> um, That's right, Um, so we all know about three dimensions, forward, backward, left, right, up, down. But in physics, we've often found there are things that we don't directly experience or see. And one of those could possibly be an extra dimension of space. It's hard to, to imagine it, it's hard to envision it because we see three dimensions, there's no question about it. But as we've seen with atoms and quarks, the fact that we don't see it doesn't mean it's not there. So there could be hidden dimensions of space that are different directions that we don't directly go out into. It's, a, it's, it's hard to wrap your head around, but theoretically, it's not. And what we found is that it's possible that gravity varies in this extra dimension, and it varies really dramatically. It varies exponentially. So extremely quickly, you can go from a place where gravity is strong to where gravity is weak. Or, and to put, it, to put it another way, where masses are very big, uh, to where masses are very small, I don't know if you remember, but earlier on we talked about the fact that one of the puzzles is why masses aren't so much bigger than they are. Mm-hmm. And this would be a very natural explanation for that. Because anywhere except where this one place where gravity is concentrated, gravity would seem to be very weak. And you're absolutely right that this other place where gravity is concentrated, this other brain... It's not a place where we're living. It's not a place where our double or doppelganger are living, where his Crook is living. I mean, it could be a completely different universe with completely different properties. We really don't know. And that's one of the really interesting questions. Um, could this other brain exist? And what would its properties be? But at the very least, if this idea is right, we would be able to see signals of particles that travel in the extra dimension at the Large Hadron Collider, which could uh, verify or maybe rule out the idea.
0: Well, we'll be looking forward to finding out what (laughs) science does explore and also seeing the role of science expanded in our society through a sensible Mm -hmm. implementation and sensible reporting and great writing like yours. Uh, I
1: really appreciate that. Thank you.
0: uh, You know, one thing I want to ask real quickly is I think one of the hallmarks of great science writing is uh, the use of analogies and metaphors, um, like your beanbag uh, Mm -hmm. metaphor. I mean, this is really great stuff. And this is, I think, at the core that um, science, for all the logic and and precision that's required of it and the the veracity of the other world, really also, um, in order to make it real for the rest of us, requires quite a bit of creativity, I think.
1: So it's interesting. When I, when I wrote my first book, at first I thought, I'm not using analogies because they're all silly. And they're not all silly, but a lot of the time I think they seem almost artificially constructed to reproduce what, what what you're explaining. So what I realized is you really want analogies that, first of all, you can follow through consistently or metaphors you can follow through consistently. And also things that affect you viscerally. And, of course, what those are depends on who you are and what you're thinking about. But I realized there were just other types of analogies that weren't used all the time, so you know from art or from even social relations, like thinking of particles interacting in terms of human relations was kind of fun so it was a way to be creative so i so I enjoy that um, but sometimes it's just better to just actually say what's going on, and sometimes an analogy helps because it puts you into a mindset where you can identify the concept with something you're more familiar
0: with. I've been speaking with Lisa Randall. her new book is. Knocking on Heaven's Door, How Physics and Scientific Thinking Illuminate the Universe and the Modern World. Thank you for joining me, Lisa.
1: Thank you so much. This has been a great interview. I appreciate it.